Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president and Old Testament professor here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our academic dean and New Testament professor, Tommy Keene, our instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church, Paul Jean, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament, Peter Lee, and also our professor in systematic theology, Grace Sutanto. And we are going to continue now. I think we're in a, the sixth article of the Apostles' Creed. We've been working through the Apostles' Creed over the past couple of weeks and months, just talking about from our various disciplines, the theology found therein, the, the reason for the organization of the creed and the way that it's found and its witness, not only in the church, but its witness from the church to the world. And we're in this interesting passage now because we slow down. We see that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then we get this article, the one that we're discussing today. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, this is a, a, a Roman leader who, who was ruling in Judea at the time between something you know, mid-20s and mid-30s AD. But it does kind of raise the question, well, why does he get such billing? Why, why this focus in on this particular character in the Gospels. He occurs in all four Gospels. This account is back and forth between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. But why is it that he gets special billing in this great creed that's kind of talking about the main things that we believe? We suddenly dive into Pontius Pilate. You know, that's, it's, that's a really interesting question, and I, I, I like what you've said about the creed kind of slowing down and, and the beats that you get there. And you know, as you were talking, I was thinking you really focus in on this moment. Uh, and of course, you know, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So you've got a lot of attention in the creed that's focused on basically three days of Jesus's own own life. It raises that interesting tension that we've seen elsewhere. On the one hand, the creed is really specific. In fact, naming names, Pontius Pilate is the is the one who convicted uh, Jesus Christ. And we can think about that. And then on the other hand, the creed is, you know, this functions, this, this clause functions in the creed to summarize a lot of Jesus's life. In fact, his, the whole course of his life, it, this is the apex of, of the, his suffering. And it's interesting to me from a biblical theological point of view, when you think about how the Bible treats uh, the 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 life of Jesus, it frequently, repeatedly, consistently talks about the life of Christ in two stages. Uh, Luke twenty four, Jesus summarizes his own life, his own life, the, the the as the sufferings of the Christ and the glory to come. First Peter ten through tw- one ten through twelve does the same thing: the suffering and the subsequent glories of the Christ, and so. On the one hand, it's very specific. On another hand, on the other hand, this is a good spot for us to talk about the entirety of Jesus's life as a life of humiliation, beginning in his incarnation, divesting himself of glory, becoming like us in res- in every respect, but also, you know, not just from heaven to earth divesting, but then over the course of Christ's life, continually divesting himself of glory through suffering which culminates here at this moment. 
I think we forget how radical of a claim this is. The fact that we're claiming that God suffers, right? The second person of the Trinity suffers in human flesh. And I've been thinking about this a lot, the humiliation of Christ, especially in light of the course on Islam that I'm teaching next semester, because this is such a huge stumbling block for uh, Islam, especially when we take a look at the theology presented in the Quran, right? We see at least two stumbling blocks here because on the one hand, because God is transcendent, uh, according to the Quran, there's no way that he would suffer. He is beyond suffering. He's too majestic for suffering. And then secondly, on the other hand, we also have Christ Esau as the great prophet, right? And as a prophet of God, he would never suffer shame either because God is faithful to him. And so we actually see this emphasis throughout the Quran again and again, even in the Joseph story, which Surah 12 talks about. Joseph there is never shamed in the way that Joseph was shamed in the Genesis story in the Old Testament, where in the Genesis story, when Potiphar accused Joseph, uh, Potiphar's wife, sorry, accused Joseph of assaulting her, uh, Potiphar's wife was believed and Joseph was shamed and he was imprisoned for it. But in the Quran, Joseph is actually immediately believed that he would never do this against Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife was later, therefore, uh, reprimanded for it. So you see this again and again as a theme that the prophet would never be shamed and God would never be shamed. And how dare they, uh, from the Muslim perspective, how, how dare Christians, in other words, claim that God would become the one who is suffering, the one who is humiliated, or that a prophet of God would be humiliated. But to us, right, that's exactly the point here. It's so important and foundational and radical for the Christian claim that God actually became incarnate. He took on flesh and suffered to completion. So so pivotal is this that it actually ended up in the creed, that, that the very thing that became a stumbling block, not only for the Jews and the Greeks, is also a stumbling block for another majority religion now. And it's actually that which is the, the hinge on Christian religion, right? The fact that the incarnate God was humiliated and he suffered and died. It's interesting that this gospel notion of power, and we've talked about this a little bit before in this podcast, actually, when we were talking about leadership, right? And, and I'm struck by the same thing, Gray, you know, having, having lived in the Middle East and done a good bit of service with Christians who are converts from Islam and kind of working through that renewal of the mind that they, that we all have to go through. But for them, one of the big things is letting go of this idea that raw power is kind of the best expression of an almighty God, right? And, and coming to terms with this idea that Christ, who could have, who could have freed himself at any point at the, you know, the snap of his fingers could have vanquished the whole Roman empire. And yet because of his love, right? Because of his care for those the father had secured for him, he undergoes the suffering, that that's a greater sign of power, that that's a greater sign of strength, right? And I remember for myself kind of figuring that out as a, as a Western kid, you know, in college and kind of realizing what that means and then getting to kind of articulate that. It's, it's, it's a wonderful expression. And I think this back and forth between Jesus and Pilate is so fascinating in this way because here you have these you have these two rulers, as it were, these two kings. One of them is completely comfortable in his expression of power, and one is submitting himself willingly for the purpose of his own kingdom, and yet also is, is unimpeachable, right? You know, Christ is unimpeachable as king, and that that comes across even in his interaction with Pilate here. And it's such a, for me, it's such a fascinating interaction because you have these two different expressions of what power looks like. 
and one's the true king and one's one's the derived king right yeah it's not just a sign of power too right scott that's exactly right one of the most beautiful verses for me in the book of romans is that god showed his love for us in this that while we were still enemies he died for us right romans 5 and again it's a passage that is striking because it puts suffering for another as not just a sign of power in this case, but also a sign of love. I've been challenged by this uh, recently again, too. So I'd love to hear what Tommy and Paul would like to say to this, because when I was taking courses on Islam in Edinburgh as well, I've heard this often from this religion. They would ask this question, why does God need to show his love for us? You know, they're very offended by what Paul said here, Romans chapter five. Isn't it enough that God has given us a guide and a, a way of life? a law it doesn't that prove enough of his love for us why does he also need to prove himself as a loving god to us by dying on a cross why is that so important to us could you say a little bit about that perhaps from the perspective of not only romans but also the biblical message in general i'm just going to speak off things i've been thinking about recently and gray forgive me if uh, it doesn't answer the question but when people ask like why does god have to prove his love it might be helpful to take a step back and ask like what God is first and foremost about. Like he's first and foremost about not proving his love, but pursuing his own glory, you know? And so most of us are familiar with Jonathan Edwards where he he wrote the end for which God created the universe. Right. And I think one of the helpful insights from what Jonathan Edwards said is that God's pursuit of his glory go hand in hand with, um, his pursuit of our happiness, you know, and that's actually a really paradigm shifting because when many people think about the Christian faith, they think that the two have an inverse relationship. You know, when I follow Jesus, this means I have to give up sex. I have to give up this and that. But, um, you know, I think that was really helpful from Edwards in terms of God is pursuing his glory and he has to pursue his glory because, um, nothing else will satisfy us fully. And so I think if I were asked, like, why does God have to prove his love for us, right? I think there are a lot of ways you could, you know, answer that, but maybe it's a different way of just thinking about, like, he's actually first about pursuing his glory, but then our happiness, our satisfaction go hand in hand. And um, so that's how I would think about it. You know, and I, the other thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is some of you may know, um, Tony Shea, he was like the founder of Zappos. He recently died, and um, there's some speculation that um, he was spiraling. Maybe it was suicide, but at the very least, prior to his death, he was like addicted to drugs and all of that. And the reason why that's a, a striking is if you read his book, Delivering Happiness, right? He uh, basically, that's the story of his life. He, he actually never really cared all that much about money but he just cared about pursuing happiness. And it's ironic that for someone that spoke so much about it and so forth, um, still struggled with finding it at the end of the day. So when you juxtapose like what Tony Shea would say about happiness, because essentially he argues that, you know, we can be happy without God. But then um, when you compare what, what Jonathan Edwards might say, where he says, no, we can't be happy unless God pursues his own glory, right? I would say that through that process, we see that God loves us, right? But I'm not sure like how I would actually answer the question, why does God have to prove his love for us? I think it's more um, God 
must, you know, pursue his own glory for uh, our sake, for our sake. So that's how I would think about it. That helpfully connects with Scott's point too about power, that the way in which God and uh, the Father and the Son pursue their own glory demonstrates their lo- that they're motivated by love. You know, that the obvious way that we pursue glory in this world isn't through is is through happiness that 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 seems to be the intuitively that's how we we think we should pursue our own glory but how jesus pursues his glory isn't with the sword it isn't with the power it is with self-sacrifice it's it's through suffering through sharing in our pain and i think that gets at the necessity of the humiliation of christ necessity is a tough word, but Hebrews puts it this way. It's fitting. It's fitting that it be this way. It's fitting that he suffer in every way as we suffer because he's saving us. And he enters into our condition, our brokenness, the injustice of the world, the world under curse, and he experiences every aspect of that curse so that he can lift us out of it. So he becomes like us in order to redeem us so that we can become like him in his glory. So you, you see that fittingness there, but also that he he did it not by force of arms, but by sharing and participation and covenanting with his people. The other thing I might add, just dwelling on Gray's question is, why does God have to prove his love for us? I think one way to approach this maybe more pastorally is, um, but incorporating our understanding of sin. The reality is that no one can escape the effects of sin, one of which is guilt. And in my experience, and I think many people can attest to this, there's this lingering sense of guilt, right? And I know we try to neuter that in our culture through self-esteem, but even that, that's interesting because regardless of how much you try to make people feel better, they don't feel better, right? Because we can't escape the effects of sin, right? I think in that context, if someone were to ask, why does God have to prove his love for us, right? When you pastor people, when you listen to people, I think many people in the deepest sense do struggle with how could God love me or does God love me, right? And so when God does demonstrate that in a tangible way through the cross, obviously, right? Um, Again, the word prove is hard, but I would say from an existential perspective, many can understand why there might be a need for God to demonstrate his love for us. Yeah, that's a that's a good way. I think, I think prove is focusing on kind of one aspect of this or one perspective, right? There's this other one that you guys have already, already, you know, expounded upon well, but this idea that God is emanating his glory and his glorious attributes. And, you know, as we see in first John four, God is love and that we shouldn't be surprised when that finds expression in the incarnation. Okay. You know, you think, but we talk about this when we're talking about Old Testament covenants a good bit, the idea like, what can we, in Old Testament prophecy, you know, what can we expect God to do in the world? Well, we can expect him to be free, right? He's, he's, his, his will is free. We can expect him to work according to covenants that he is himself freely the agent of, right? And then there's this other thing. There's this aspect of his character. You know, and he, there's all different kinds of places where we can find God's character sort of expressed, you know, in Nuche, as it were, like in a nutshell, and um, one of those is, you know, Exodus 34, 6, where there's this 
showing Moses the goodness of God or the backside of the goodness of God. And then the Lord is kind of singing this song about his own divine name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. And so we get these two kind of key attributes of the Lord. One is his mercy, right? And his, and his favor. And one is his justice and his, his need to enact justice, right? And I think when we, when we look at how God's acting in the world, we can, ex, we can imagine him, we can, ex, we can expect him to act out that character that is wholly merciful and gracious and wholly just. And the beauty, the kind of, the, the, wonderful, the wonderful twist of the story of Christ and the fact that he suffers under Pontius Pilate is that it's kind of like exactly, now that we see it, we can like say, oh, that's exactly what God would do, right? Isn't that exactly what this kind of God would do? And then at the same time, it surprised all of us, right? It's not what we were looking for. And yet, as soon as you see it, it's like the truth about the truth of it is, is, is eminently available for those who are familiar with the God of the Old Testament. This is exactly what he would, have, this is the kind of thing our God would have done. I like, Paul, what you said and how you kind of redefine the question about what God has to prove, because I don't know if he as sovereign has to prove anything. But what you did mention, and you you know you put, sort of redefine the question is that you know it, I think the word you use was demonstrate that um, the cross and the suffering of Christ is a demonstration of His mercy and and grace. He's not proving it; He is demonstrating. He is displaying it for us to see. And I think that's exactly, and the fact that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says, uh, as you know, in the Book of Romans that. Um, God demonstrated his love for us in this. And, and what uh, Scott was saying as well, this is not, a, in some sense, a surprise. We already saw sort of this, this movement in, in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, you have your creator God, your, your sovereign Yahweh, who is, um, in fact, uh, eminent in many ways with his people, that he would even reveal his divine name to, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. It, it, in fact, I think in, of Exodus 6, where Moses in Egypt amongst the Israelites are saying how your forefathers could not call him by his name or didn't, or God didn't reveal himself by his name uh, to them. He, he revealed himself to them as El Shaddai, a title, you know, a, an epithet, you know, regardless of how El Shaddai is translated, it's, it's, it's not a name, it's, it's a designation. But now by my name, he says, Yahweh, I, I, I covenant and reveal myself to you. And sometimes I think we have to remember just how, how incredibly privileged and, and that is that the Israelites could, can do that. And so we're already seeing that direction in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, I think building off on everything that you all just said, basically, right, we see God doing that which is fitting to his own character. And I think what we get in the redemption story of Christ suffering for us is not only his justice, but also his love going together, isn't it? Such that he can actually forgive sins and blot out our transgressions without at the same time compromising his justice. Because if he were just to blot out our transgressions and he would to let guilty people go just like that, then his justice would be compromised. Yet at the same time, he is a loving God. So how does he love us without compromising his justice? How does he, in other words, act out all of his attributes together without compromising one for the other? Well, we see that in the cross ultimately. And I think, again, if we're just comparing that with regard to uh, the theology that we might find in the Quran, we might argue that here, when God blots out transgressions and counts your good deeds as higher than your bad deeds, well, 
arguably that's compromising one aspect of the attribute of God so that God would be the merciful one in this point, or God could be just and yet his graciousness and his mercy would not yet be seen. So his demonstration of the love of God in Romans 5 could be seen in light of Romans 3, 25, that he showed us righteousness in that in the past he has been patient, he overlooked many sins, and now he is vindicating his own righteousness by giving himself on the cross. This, of course, has this kind of ethical implication that Paul draws out in Philippians 2, you know, the idea of having this mind yourselves, Christians, to be able to embrace something like what we see in Christ emptying himself. Now, of course, we can't die on the cross for the sins of others, but we can have that kind of mindset that we see expressed in the incarnation. That's a really important part of the Christian life, right? This is a big part of the Christian life that is at odds with um, so many of those other belief systems that we find out there, including many varieties of Islam as well that would see suffering as a sign of weakness, as a sign of failure, same thing in the West. We see this in health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We see this in kind of, you know, Nietzschean Ubermensch type theology. It's interesting to me that actually, while, while Christians may not always be so aware of the implications, ethical implications of the gospel, that people outside of Christianity are aware of it. You know, that, that Nietzsche was very clear, like, this is a big part of being a Christian, is that you care for the weak and you suffer on behalf of others. You know, that this is, this is the main part of being a Christian. That, that Nietzsche could see that, and yet I think a lot of Christians struggle with this idea of identifying with the weak, identifying with the disenfranchised, of identifying with those who suffer, and that there is a, there is a Christocentric, cruciform aspect to suffering in like manner, in the manner of Christ. Yeah, and, and, and Nietzsche is interesting because for him, He's quite cynical about the whole thing as well. Right. Uh, you know, Christians have done this because they are out of power. They have done it as a way of the, the, this ethic of self-sacrifice is a way of Christians reclaiming power from those who are empowered. It's interesting how deep this connection goes, uh, this, this ethic of humiliation, of, of suffering for the other, of self-sacrifice, which is the root of who we are. And it's at the root of who we are because it's what Christ has done. I read this, somebody had recommended this book on leadership and it was one of these kind of like, kind of hip books. Actually, there's been a few of these written recently and uh, it was kind of a Machiavellian approach to leadership. It was really terrible. But one of them is, one of his, this guy's rules were everyone should be seeking you know, their own advancement. Everyone should be seeking to power over others. And when you meet someone who doesn't look like they're doing that, it's because they're doing it better than you. Right. Now that's basically what Nietzsche is saying about Christianity too. It's like, they're, they're trying to better you by seeming humble. And yet what Christ is doing is not that, right. That's that, that, that's not what's happening here. This is, this is a true, this is true empathy. This is true self-sacrifice. And I think that's where the strength of the creed is 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 so beautiful, in its in its brevity and in in its specificity. You get the whole of the humiliation of Christ, the whole of His life of suffering. Like Philipp, you mentioned, Scott Philippians too. You know, you, you see that that descent into death, um, and yet, as you brought up at the beginning, there's also this specificity. It's focused on Pontius Pilate. It's a really interesting focal point, and in fact. 
So I'm thinking about it. Pontius Pilate is the only other human being mentioned in the creed. Uh, you, you've got Jesus yeah. Christ as the as the divine man, and then and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then the and then Pontius Pilate. You know, it's it's an odd spot to be specific, and I, and so I was wondering if anyone had any thoughts along those lines. Why highlight Pontius Pilate in particular? Why not convicted by the Sanhedrin? Why not you know some other or more conceptual, convicted under, um, you know, by, by, by human justice systems or something like that. It's, it's highlights the particular role of this person. I wonder why that's so important. Well, I do wonder, this is just speculation. Uh, but when we look at the gospel accounts, the gospel writers seem to underscore that Pontius Pilate himself did not believe Jesus was guilty, right? And so I wonder if the mention of Pontius Pilate was to underscore like the breadth or the depth of Jesus' suffering, that even when the systems that were set in place to protect them, to vindicate him, recognized his innocence, they still condemned them. So, you know, I wonder, but that's purely speculation. Calvin actually makes that point. I don't think it's speculative at, at all. He, Calvin goes on to say that, Pilate both acquitted and convicted Jesus. He acquitted Jesus privately, but condemned him publicly, which all goes to show the brokenness of human justice systems. And so one of the things that's happening here at, uh, at the trial is, well, the human justice system is on trial. And we are showing demonstrating publicly the bankruptcy of any sort of uh, uh, of justice that we as human as fallen human beings under the curse can can possibly provide this world you know i think that our readers might find in a strange way much comfort here like at least for two reasons one you know many people do suffer in this world in many different ways you know during recent discussions on injustice systemic injustice and so forth I think that we can find that Jesus is someone that can truly empathize and connect. And so there is really a point of being able to intersect with those that do not believe in faith. And yet at the center of the Christian faith is someone who knew justice in the most profound sense. But I'm always struck by this as well, that Jesus underscores his sovereignty. He's the son of God. And when he talks about God's plan of redemption and the hour that comes, there's never any doubt that God is in control of everything that is taking place. And yet within that worldview, um, there's the pervasiveness, profundity of suffering. And that, that's always struck me because one of the main arguments against God seems to be, well, how can there be a good or almighty God given all the suffering? But at the center of Christianity, you have Jesus who suffers as the sovereign one. And I think if people were able to recognize that, they would see that there is something unique and attractive about Christianity. That's such a great thing, Paul. I'm so glad you mentioned it, the, you know, how, um, you know, with a lot of the injustice discussions that has been taking a lot of our attention in, the, in, recent, uh, in recent times, Jesus was also one who suffered injustice. And um, and how Hebrews talks about, uh, for that reason, he is able to sympathize with the injustice that we, we endure. 
I find it interesting how you have that sort of here is Jesus who can sympathize with you in Hebrews. And then in first Peter, you actually have it almost the other direction there, how, you know, you can identify with Christ in his suffering as believer. And if you are suffering injustice, so by faith in Christ, you can also identify with Christ in his suffering. And uh, as opposed to where Hebrews is going from, from God down to us, First Peter 4 is talking about the believer identifying now with Christ uh, and his suffering. How, uh, in one sense, it's as horrible as all this is. And, and, you know, if it weren't for the suffering of Christ in bearing this, you know, there'd be no way for us to really define the, the tragedy that we go through when we have to suffer injustice ourselves. The sovereignty thing, Paul, that you mentioned, I thought was great because, you know, ultimately, I don't know if we could ever answer why Pontius Pilate specifically is named in, in the creed. That is, I have to say, until it was brought up today, it's something I've never really thought about. You say these creeds so often, sometimes you just sort of kind of go through the motion and, and forget sometimes uh, what um, the specificities. And I don't I don't know if I have, we have a, ever can really say with all confidence of why he's mentioned but i do find it interesting how you know in the book of acts it specifies uh jesus his suffering under pontius pilate per se as fulfillment of biblical prophecy that underlines the sovereignty aspect paul that you mentioned and it i think it's in rome x4 where it talks about jesus suffering under under pontius pilate under the uh jewish leadership as a fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 1, that says, you know, why do the nations rage? Why do they uh, plot in vain, I, I think is, is what it says. So Psalm 2 describes nations sort of in, in this unholy alliance. They are, they are setting aside whatever grievances they have to come together to, to oppose the Lord and his anointed and his Messiah. And, and that's essentially what we're seeing here in the suffering of Christ. It's Jewish leaders setting aside whatever grievances they had with Roman leadership, Roman leadership that is willing to work together with Jews, uh, Jewish leaders, to ally themselves together to stand against Jesus as the Messiah. It's, it's, it's a perfect fulfillment of Psalm 2. And so the book of Acts actually cites that as now. Here is what's going on. And, and this really is, you know, just a smaller picture of the greater rebellion that we're going to see in the last days at the return of Christ, where Satan's going to be released. And you're going to have now an, another unholy alliance of the nations uh, against the Lord at his holy mountain for one last battle. Uh, we're seeing a small glimpse of that here in the figure of Pontius Pilate and his uh, working with the Jews here to, to send Christ unjustly to the cross. I think a basic point that comes out as well here, the fact that the uh, creed mentions both the birth of Christ from the Virgin Mary, but also now his death under Pontius Pilate. You see the beginning and end point of Jesus's earthly ministry there and pointing out that this is a real historical public event, publicly accessible to all so that we can actually verify in our public records. And this is a basic point that Machen brought out in his Christianity liberalism that liberalism presents a completely different faith because it's saying that the resurrection and the death of Christ don't really matter if it happened historically or not. That's very much in contrary to Christian Christianity as originally conceived, that this is a public faith. Everyone can verify it. And so this is not just something that we are making up. This is not a vision that was given to just one person. This is actually something verifiable. 
and you can go back to the sources and check it out. I'm mildly ashamed that as an OP guy, I didn't mention mention, but uh, to uh, affirm that it just to stress the fact that yeah, our our Christian faith is not subjectively grounded; it is based on an objective reality, and and I think that's sort of what Machen was trying to uh, say here is that there is an objectivity, a historicity, a verifiability to everything that we believe, and it's grounded on this historical fact and reality. And this is very Old Testament. This is a very biblical way of locating something in history, right? I mean, you name the, you name the ruler at the time. Okay. This is kind of, this this is, it's a kind of a, you know, a historical footnote as it were on one end. And then also by highlighting the sort of government authority, there is a, I think kind of an emphasis here as Peter, you just pointed out kind of drawing off of Psalm two, there's this emphasis on the idea that while you have these private citizens involved in these things, the, the weight, of the Roman Empire was brought to bear against Christ, right? He he was while we have this fascinating dialogue where you know like in you know in John Pontius Pilate is saying you know what is truth and kind of this this personal interaction. At the end of the day, though, Jesus is willingly you know he's giving himself up, but he is chewed up by the gears of state, right? And this. This is an important part of the redemptive plan that God is working out in Christ, right? And, and, and it's an important thing to point out. And I think sometimes we miss that. Not to, there's the historicity of it. There's the objectivity of it. And there's the fact that the empires of this world have a stake in this battle, right? And they've, they've, they've staked their claim. Yeah, so the, so the creed is, in, in many senses, mimicking the Bible's own set of emphases. These aren't concepts. These aren't abstractions. It's not, we can talk in abstractions and it's helpful to talk in abstractions. This is a condemnation of the human justice system. And we can, we can talk in that conceptual way, but there are real people behind this. And I, Gray, appreciate you mentioning Mary there. I'd forgotten about Mary. Um, And as the kind of like bookends of Jesus's life, you had these two persons, these two people, and one of them a loving influence, the other one a condemnatory one, a cynical one. Um, and, and, but you see these two real live flesh and blood people, which the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels do all the time. It tells us, it's interesting how uh, I was thinking about the Machen point that you made, Gray. You know, it's blind Bartimaeus. You, you have a, a name who you can uh, track and one scholar Bauckham makes the point that it's likely that the reason why there are real people's names listed in the Gospels is because these are this is the paper trail. These are the people that you can talk to to verify that these things took place. So having that particularized content, which which is risky, right? It's risky to have to to be able to to say. You know, that person down the street, uh, Simon the Tanner by the Sea, he'll back me up on this. But having that content is actually a testimony to the historicity of these things, that these were real people involved. You can find their names on forms. We've, we've, we have Pontius Pilate you know, as a verified uh, individual who we can track and trace and, and hear from about what took place. Yeah, I think this is a point that is simple but cannot be overstated because no matter what our views are on apologetics, it's incredibly useful to point out that 
the death of Christ on the cross is the most historically verifiable fact about the Christian faith. I think that could give us a lot of confidence in our faith. And it's something that both non-Christians and Christian scholars alike could admit to. Pick up any book, uh, even someone like, like someone like Bart Ehrman, and they would have to emphasize that this is a fact that everybody has to reckon with. It's not the death of Christ on the cross that is oftentimes debated, but rather, of course, the resurrection that is debated. And that, of course, depends on your supernatural worldview, uh, whether or not you accept supernatural worldview. But it's really encouraging that Christian faith is really a publicly verifiable truth to preach. Well, this has been a great discussion, and I always appreciate us getting to come together and, and, and talk about this important creed of the Christian life, this important statement of faith that my family and I recited yesterday uh, in worship as we were preparing for communion. And it's, it's a gift to us to sit back and reflect on these articles of the faith. So we will be back to talk about the next article. Okay, so not only was Christ, did Christ suffer under Pontius Pilate, but he was crucified died and was buried. So this, this theme of continuing in the humiliation and the sufferings of Christ will continue for another line in the Apostles' Creed, and we'll be back to discuss that next time. So until then, take care. You know, sometimes students in class ask for guidance on how to pronounce names. And I tell them just do it confidently because <clears throat> when I was at my college fellowship, there was this exchange student that came and it was like 10, 10 white students, like 10 Korean students and this one like foreign student, right? And when she was reading Pontius, and she read Pontius Pilate, but she did it with such like confidence. Everyone looked at one another, like saying all these years we've been, reading it incorrectly for the rest of the study everyone's like and they made it a point to like assert themselves like now they know better so the entire time is Pontius Pilate was like washed his hands so somehow we'll insert that that's awesome I always assumed too for I think the first 15 years of my life that Pontius was some adjective that I was not aware of and it met something like arrogant guy or something. And his name was Pilate, but he was not just Pilate. He was Pontius. Pontius. Yeah. <laughs> he was more Pontius than other guys. Uh, these are great <laughs> stories. Sounds like it's right, though. That sounds, that sounds great. That sounds right to me. Doesn't it? Don't you kind yeah. of feel like you could say something like, that guy's so Pontius? And people would be like, yeah, I know what you mean. Because it's not so, so much like pompous. He's not only yeah, pompous. Yeah, it's like he's pompous. Also pompous. It is. Yeah, pompous and Pontius. <laughs>